Illusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer on the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we infuse weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll feature Inside Your Brain and How to Watch the Water. But first up, here's the news with Jackie Hayes. In the confusion and devastation that followed China's earthquake on May 12th, it seems that everyone forgot about the pandas. The earthquake hit the southwest region of China, killing an estimated 50,000 people. The same region also holds the largest panda breeding centre. Two of the centre's 53 pandas were seriously injured and six went missing after the quake. And there was only enough water for the pandas to last a few days. And it seems everyone forgot to be collecting bamboo for them. So the federal Chinese government has stepped in, providing 4,500 kilograms of bamboo... 1,000 kilograms of bamboo shoots and enormous quantities of apples, soybean, eggs, milk powder and other food items to feed the giant pandas at the centre. Eight pandas chosen to entertain tourists during the Olympic Games were removed from the centre and sent to the provincial capital of Chengdu and will be flown to Beijing on Saturday. Forget Apollo, forget Mars rovers. The next planetary missions will involve tiny jumping robots like a horde of grasshoppers. Swiss researchers revealed their mechanical locust at an international conference last week. It weighs just 7 grams and stands a mere 5 centimetres tall. But the locust can leap up to 1.4 metres or 27 times its own height. The researchers designed it to use a small battery, being able to jump every three seconds for a total of 320 times. The researchers say these robots could be deployed in war zones or on other planets. They'll be more useful than conventional rovers because they can leap over rough terrain and fit through tiny gaps. The researchers have been racing to make these jumping robots for the last decade or so, inspired by the mechanics of small insects. Microbiologists have unlocked the secret of the bacteria that caused the bubonic plague, which killed over 200 million people during various epidemics. The key is in a single genetic mutation. The bacterium recently evolved from a more harmless bacterium. So the plague bacterium needs calcium in order to grow at body temperature. And when it can't get access to this calcium, it produces large amounts of something called aspartic acid. And it produces this aspartic acid because of the single mutation which stops it getting an important protein called the enzyme aspartase. So the researchers think what happened is the aspartic acid that the bacteria was producing was increasing the acidity of the cells, which made calcium available. But it also wreaked havoc on the host. And next, our resident neuroscientist, Mawson Karim, looks inside your brain. Allow me to use a popular buzzword to describe a field of neuroscience, multidisciplinary. It's a must-have word for grant applications showing that the project spans over a number of fields, biology and maths, computer science and physics, and even the mortal enemies, science and religion. Okay, I'm being a bit cynical, 
but neuroscience does tap into a vast array of fields. Psychology, biochemistry, computer science, engineering, physiology and physics, just to name a few. The study of the brain can encompass all these fields because there are numerous ways to examine the brain, and these require different skills and equipment. Let's take a tour of these techniques, starting with the single brain cell. A neuron is a little machine that can fire off an electrical impulse. It can transmit signals to neighboring neurons. There are 10 to the power of 11 neurons in the human brain. An average neuron forms and receives about a thousand synaptic connections. That's 10 to the power of 14 synaptic connections formed, which is a hundred million million connections. So when a neuron fires, a signal may spread across the network, depending on how it's, being, depending on how it's been wired together. This wiring depends on the genes contained in the cell and the environment the person is exposed to. Biochemists can separate a single cell from the vast array and examine the cell's properties, usually obtained from a rat. As crude as it sounds, a biochemist cracks open the skull and removes the brain. The biochemist locates the region of interest, let's say the hippocampus buried in the middle of the brain, slices out the tissue and cuts it into tiny bits with a blade. The small flecks of tissue are treated in buffers and chemicals that keep the cells alive and separates them further apart into single cells. The cells are plated on a petri dish which contain a layer of nutrients for the neurons to thrive. If all goes well, the neurons start making their own synaptic connections. So what can one do with these cells on a dish? We can examine how well neurons from different groups make connections. In one experiment, a group of rats were fed DHA, docosahexaenoic acid, which is a lipid found in the brain and a nutrient found in human breast milk. When compared to the control, the DHA-fed group had neurons that formed more connections in the petri dish, suggesting that a diet of DHA may promote growth of synaptic connections. A drawback from the single-cell approach is that the pattern of wiring present in the brain is lost when plated on a dish. Biochemists can preserve some of the brain's connections by taking a slice of the brain. The connections in that slice are preserved. There's even a way to examine the firing behaviour of a single neuron when the whole brain is still intact. Electrophysiological recordings can be achieved by exposing the brain surface of an animal and inserting a very fine needle to probe single neurons. The needle is hooked up to a device that records the neuron's firing response. It may be inserted into the visual cortex of an animal. If the animal is shown an image of vertical lines and the neuron fires, then this neuron encodes information about vertical lines. If it doesn't fire for horizontal lines, then this neuron has nothing to do with encoding this information. Of course, it is not a simple case of a single neuron encoding one bit of information. It may encode many bits. For instance, the same neuron may fire at an image of a house. This doesn't mean that the neuron of the visual cortex was shaped to identify houses. Let's make a leap from the single neuron and its connections to behaviour. Psychologists consider the human as being a black box. They can get a subject to perform a behavioural task and measure their response. My favourite are the emotional tasks, where the evil psychologist presents subjects with a task to complete, but show them positive words like love and laugh, and then on a separate occasion negative words like hate and hurt. Subjects will actually perform worse at the task when showed negative works. words, perhaps placing the subject in a bad mood. So words are powerful. And it's not just words. Pictures of angry faces are used quite a bit and generally activate the brain's fear centre, the amygdala. A big indication of how well or confident a subject is performing at a task is their reaction time. 
In experiments I conduct at uni, I get my subjects to perform a vibrotactile discrimination task, where subjects receive two vibrations on their fingertip. They need to determine which one felt faster. I can make this task quite difficult by making the two vibrations more similar. As the task becomes more challenging, the subjects' reaction times are slower because they become more uncertain as to how to respond. So the psychologist uses the human subject as a tool to look at the brain. They feed input to the human, that is, a task to perform, then get the output via behavioural responses such as reaction time. What's happening in between? How are the brain's cells responding to the input that lead to the behavioural output? For instance, why is it that people with schizophrenia perceive the world so differently from healthy subjects? They may hear voices or not be aware of their own actions. What is happening in between the input of the environment and the output of their aberrant behaviour? There are a number of human-friendly ways that the in-between neural responses can be viewed. Neuroimaging allows the researcher to peer inside the mind, but in a more indirect manner. Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging, or fMRI, tracks neural activity by recording how blood flows through the brain. The premise is that when we have a thought, the neural activity of the relevant brain region perks up, and blood flow to that site is increased, delivering oxygen. As a subject gets scanned while performing a task, we can track the blood flow to see what neural regions are involved in that task. Meditators, for instance, were placed in an fMRI scanner and displayed more neural activity on the left-sided anterior region of their brain compared to non-meditators. This region is associated with positive emotions. Electroencephalograms, or EEGs, are thinking caps worn by a subject to pick up underlying neural activity emanating from under the skin and scalp. Because these signals are so tiny, they need to be amplified to be recorded. Subjects perform a behavioural test while the activity of their cortex is recorded in waves of neural activity. If populations of neurons begin to fire in sync, the output of electrical activity flows in characteristic waves. If you're wearing one of these caps and you start to fall asleep, alpha waves appear, signifying the neurons of your brain are getting ready for rest. Unfortunately, fMRI and EEG are indirect methods of measuring neural activity. fMRI must track blood flow and map this back to neural events. And EEG has to contend with a small signal making its way through the scalp. These techniques come with a lot of noise, and within the noise, the signal of neural activity is embedded. A lot of mathematical approaches are used to clean up the data, to strip away the noise to find the signal. This isn't fudging the results. The techniques used to process and analyse the data is based on sound understanding of the imaging techniques used. The data from any of these approaches, signal cell recordings, behavioural studies and neuroimaging, can be fed into a model to describe how the brain may work. Now that we have the technology to look at how complicated networks such as the brain may operate, we can tweak with the parameters of a neural model to uncover plausible explanations for neural events and behaviours. I must confess that a lot of the theoretical models go way, way over my head, so I'll try to explain it in a way that makes sense to me. Facebook. Provided you haven't been living under a rock or a cave with no internet access, then you have heard of this social networking phenomena. You have a profile where you can add your friends, their friends add their friends, and so on. You can look on your friends list and then add those friends as friends because they're your friends too. As this occurs, the connections between friends will grow, kind of like the synaptic connections between neurons. As the connections grow, some amusing things start to happen. 
you start to notice that two friends you thought never met are actually buddies. It really is a small world. We all know each other in a short number of steps. Now I'm not saying that the brain's network is structured like that of Facebook, but there is a rich array of studies examining how the structure of networks, whether it be social networks, technological networks, or biological networks, can generate distinctive patterns of information transfer, synchronization, or other global phenomena. These can be applied to the neuroscience field. For instance, it is likely that any two neurons in the brain are only a few steps away from each other, making rapid communication possible. A general question arises from all of these ways to look at the brain. How do population of neurons give rise to, rise to cognition and execute behavior? And of course, the big question, how does consciousness arise from a huge batch of cells and their connections? There's definitely a PhD project amongst it all for me to plug away at. Thanks to the big bunch of cells, Mohsin Karim. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Diffusion at 2SCR.com. Diffusion at 2SCR.com. Brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Next up, Ben Folds with the best imitation of myself. I feel like a quote out of context, withholding the rest, so I can be free what you want to see. I got the gesture and sounds, got the timing down, it's uncanny, yeah you think it was me. week's show, Amy Bullen interviewed two of the 2008 Clooney's Ross Award winners. This week, Amy interviews another of the winners, 
Ivan Marils, an electrical engineer, who has developed an expert management system for water in irrigation canals, which reduces water wastage. Congratulations on your win for the Clooney Ross Awards. Thank you very much, Amy. It's indeed a very nice congrat. Well, it's a very nice thing to get to get. <laughs> Can you tell me a bit about the research that's responsible for your win? The IT-based management system for water and irrigation canals. Yes, the the main idea behind it is is essentially to observe that we lose a lot of water in our irrigation ch- channels because of lack of knowledge. So the measurements that we get on the normal uh, infrastructure on water is very poor. And by improving the infrastructure by what I call overlaying it with an IT infrastructure and measuring water both in uh, volumes and flow, you can get a much better handle on how to manage the water that you have in the channels. And so that's the first step essentially, is build a system that allows you to measure water along the channels uh, and so that you get a very good appreciation of where the water is and how it flows. That's the number one step. And then the number two is once you have that information is to understand how it all relates to each other and to actuate the water so that you can deliver the water as requested by the farmer. So we try to emulate as much as possible the behavior of an open loop channel so that it looks like it was a piped system or more. So water on demand, if you like. That's that's what we're trying to, uh, to, to achieve. And once you do that, you get significant efficiency gains on the system. And that's the core of the, of the overall idea, basically. Okay. What kind of science are you using for this? Well, I'm an electrical engineer, so not immediately related to water, I would have thought. But uh, no, I'm using uh, modeling ideas from uh, what we call system identification. It's a theory that allows you to use data measured uh, in real time over system to understand how it behaves. And uh, we call it data mining, if you like. So we use the data from the measurements in the field to understand how everything hangs together and how it behaves. From that data, from that understanding, then we can then derive an understanding that allows us to model and to simulate and in the end to to actually achieve a behavior that is much better than what we had before. So how did you come up with this invention? I, have, I owe an awful lot to uh, a few people that came to ask me a question about uh, the behavior of canals in, in Queensland. David Orton from Rubicon Systems in 1997 walked into my office and said, look, even we have a particular problem and we think you may have some expertise to help us with. And we started looking at that particular problem and so we said, okay, indeed, the, the, the behavior of these irrigation channels is not so simple. And th- there are ways of trying to understand it better. And we started from there, essentially. And once I understood that by looking at a single channel or a single gate regulator was actually the wrong thing to do, but I should have, in order the right thing to do, was to look at the overall irrigation channels all in one big system. So that was the main step, essentially, to understand that a single gate or a single regulator or a single channel was the wrong place to start and the right place to start was to consider well the whole channel is important from the dam to the farmer's gate that's what is important and try to understand that and once we did that everything fell in place and that's where we started from and then once we had an idea we had a pilot trial pilot trial worked fabulously and then Rubicon started commercializing in 2002 I believe 
Okay, right. So is this in common use at the moment? or? Oh, yes. There's about 2,000 kilometres of canal that is completely automated under what is called total channel control. That's the trademark for the for the invention that Rubicon uh, implements. And uh, the Coriamboli uh, Irrigation District, the rice region in New South Wales, is fully automated. And a large portion of the central Goulburn District is automated. And the Victorian government has now gone forward with basically backing a complete overhaul of the Goulburn Murray water in Victoria. And those irrigation channels will all be uh, put under total channel control. Okay. So we look to go to about 6,000 kilometres of canal. Right. And how much water tends to be saved by using this system? Okay. So the, the water saving depends a little bit on uh, the actual losses that are in the system due to management. The more is lost due to management, the more we can save. So in some places, Colliambly, for example, they did an audit uh, on how we operated, and they went from an, an efficiency of operation of around 70% to an efficiency of 90%. So they gained about 20% of their water, and that is that starts adding up. If you could repeat that on the whole of Victoria irrigation, we would probably have as much water as the, well, probably twice as much as Melbourne uses in a year. Wow, okay. Great. How long have you been working on this? Well, the, the first question was popped in 1997, so it's about 11 years we've been working on it, and we've got a team at University of Melbourne, the number of people working on it, a team at uh, Rubicon Systems, we do, do the implementation work and also co-develop, and uh, recently we're working with some people at National ICT Australia under what we call the Water Information Network Program. So about 10 years, say roughly 50 man-year input. Now, this management system, can it actually be turned around and used in other applications? The, the similar ideas do exist in other areas, like the power system, for example, is a classic example where people use ideas of this nature. They have it a little bit easier because the system dynamics are, are slightly easier to work with. But yes, the, there are definitely areas where we can go with this. and looking at uh, pipeline water, for example, would be one area, so urban water could be addressed that way. Uh, you could look at gas pipelines, oil pipelines, anything basically that moves and is, uh, is moved around and where quantity, is in, volume is important and flow is important. They're the areas we can even go to. So the underlying mathematics, though, is even more remarkable that there is actually not that much difference between controlling the internet, for example, and controlling the water in the irrigation channels. So from a mathematical point of view, the, the techniques and ideas can be applied very widely indeed. But the actual core application where it's developed, typical resources that move around flows, where flows are important, that, that's the place where you can use these ideas. Oh, okay. That sounds very interesting. That's the power of abstraction and mathematics. Far enough away from it, it becomes the computer and you can play with the equations. And so once you have a good understanding of that in the computer, then whatever fits the model, there you can use it basically. And yes, indeed, the applications are very widely varied. Ah, yeah, well, that's, that's beautiful. <laughs> okay. Yes, it is. Well, is there anything else you want to tell me about your system? Well, one thing I would like to tell you is that we mm. just begun on the, uh, we just begun with all of this. Right. What I would like to do, really like to do, is to actually take to the next level up. So for the moment, we have been looking at channels, open channels. Uh, we would like to include rivers and the behavior of rivers. 
and start including also groundwater dam behavior and we also have started working on farm so if you do all of that together you could actually address water resource allocation in uh, a much more comprehensive manner namely you could look at what is called the basin and that's actually the right geographical scale to look at water allocation you have a basin within that basin you should do the allocation of water and putting all these components together groundwater surface water uh, dam water that's the, the right thing to do and that is still uh, an open dream of mine and that's where the, our research is going on for to develop such water information networks that really can work on that whole scale and that's the, nev- the next step for our research and development oh, okay sounds exciting <laughs> it is very exciting actually it's uh, on the farm itself, we can we can get extra savings, and we have a project under the umbrella of UniWater, uh, under that was funded by the Victorian government under an SDI initiative, that has demonstrated either significant water savings or significant economic benefit for the farmer by using simple IDs that were also used in these channels. And if we then combine that together with water on demand from the channels, then we get a combined effect of efficiency gains on the distribution, efficiency gains on the farm, they complement each other and we get even better uh, effect overall. If you then put it together, you're really talking about real water savings. Right. So that's the dream, that's where we're working on. That was Amy Bullen with Professor Ivan Mareels discussing the work he did that led to his 2008 Clooney's Ross Award. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or wild, passionate praise, then send email to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Jackie Hayes, Mawson Karim, and Amy Bullen. I produced Diffusion in the studios of 2SCR Sydney with technical support by Amy Bullen. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.